Hey, real quick, uh, <clears throat> word of warning, if you're recording a podcast on Anchor on your phone, you can record for an hour. If you're doing it on your laptop with a microphone like I am now, you can only do it for 30 minutes. They actually do give you a warning, but I didn't read it. So this is my second attempt at this because I was talking for 40 minutes to myself. So hopefully it's a blessing in disguise, yo. <laughs> you know what I mean? Anyway, um, <clears throat> so today I want to talk to you about something that I think is pretty uh, important. Um, it's basically like a, I think it's like one of the most over, most important overarching themes that I'm ever going to talk about. Um, it's something I thought a, a lot about and <clears throat> it's kind of this concept I have that if you look at every single person that was ever the richest person on earth, um, they basically use the same, not technique. I wouldn't really necessarily call it a technique, but basically what they've they've done is they've used what, what I'm going to call consolidation. And they've taken a fragmented business or segment of the economy um, that wasn't standardized, that ever, where everyone, where there was like a million different companies or uh, thousands of different companies in the same um, sector, but they were doing things completely different from one another. So <clears throat> for example, I'm just going to use the first the first person that I want to talk about that did this, and that was Cornelius Vanderbilt. He lived in New York City from 1794 to 1877, and during the time that he was alive, he became the richest person on earth, um, or at least the richest American on earth. And if you if you took what he when he died, if you took his fortune and you put it in 2010 dollars, he'd be worth 185 billion dollars. So this is probably a good person to look at. And the the industry that he consolidated, um, well, he consolidated a couple different industries, but the first one was uh, he consolidated ferry services uh, in and out of Manhattan. So <clears throat> I believe he lived on Long Island, and and I'm not f- super familiar with the geography of New York City. I've never really, I, I've never been there. I've seen it on a map, but I'm not going to pull up a map right now. Um, <clears throat> uh, so he would basically ferry people back and forth from uh, Manhattan to Long Island, vice versa. And when he was, he started doing that when he was basically a kid, when he was like 15. Well, there was a bunch of different ferry services in New York City. And they were all charged different rates. They none of them. He was the first person to actually like have his ferries be on a schedule. So he would leave Long Island at let's say eight a.m., arrive in Manhattan at eight thirty or whatever it'd be, and then go back and forth. So people knew like when he was going to be where because he had a set uh, a set schedule. Well, none of the other ferries had a schedule. They would just leave when they were uh, full of people, and then he also charged like the same fee all the time. And so he was doing one thing, but every other operator of a fair of the ferries there was doing something different. So it was a very fragmented industry, uh, even in a little area like that. And what he did is he came along and he, he started off with his own ferry and then he bought up other little ferries or partnered with people, but they all had to like provide the exact same service that he wanted his own ferry to provide. So you know if you were using a Vanderbilt Vanderbilt ferry that it ran on a schedule, you knew about how much it was going to cost. Everything was standardized. Well, then he started um, consolidating. So 
think of consolidation as one company starts, uh, basically in his case, he started just buying out the competition or intentionally just um, running them out of business. So what he would do is every other ferry um, throughout the city and then throughout the kind of like the Northeast, he started either buying up competing ferry businesses or running them out of business. And he did that until he basically had a monopoly of every ferry service in the Northeast. And then from there, he moved on to shipping. And then from shipping, he moved on to uh, doing this in the railroad industry. So he's really the first person that we can um, read about and study in depth that used this technique um, to become uh, incredibly wealthy, right? I mean, he was probably the richest person on earth when he died. Um, And then shortly after him, the next person that did this, you're probably more familiar with is John D. Rockefeller. And he started a company called Standard Oil. And John D. Rockefeller is widely regarded as the richest person in modern history. If you took the amount of money that he was worth and you put it in 2019 dollars, it would be approximately 418 billion. So that would make John D. Rockefeller far and away the richest person. Uh, but it's it's kind of difficult to to do that because it was so long ago. And the other thing is the the United States economy overall, when he was at his peak, was much smaller, right? But it's estimated that his net worth and that his he, he himself, um, his business basically, accounted for uh, about two percent of the U.S. GDP. So that's like totally insane. <clears throat> but <clears throat> excuse me. What he did is he did the same thing, and he consolidated the oil industry. So back when they first discovered oil in Ohio and Pennsylvania, the United States was still a fairly new country, right? So that would be like in the 1860s or or a little bit before the uh, Civil War, around the time of the Civil War. So it was a pretty, pretty new country. There was a lot of people coming in from different countries and it was kind of like, even like Ohio was like kind of the wild west still. So there was, oil was discovered in Pennsylvania and then Ohio. And basically there was no like big oil companies. It was basically like mom and pop shops. They would go out and they would, they call it, I think, wildcatting. You would go out and you're like, well, I think there's probably oil here. And then you would basically just put up an oil, uh, drill for oil and like hope for the best. And then there was some refineries, but there wasn't very many. And just like the ferry services in New York City, nothing was standardized. So they were refining this oil into mostly, I think, kerosene and um, a different kind of heating fuels. But every refinery would make heating fuels with like a little bit different chemical makeup. So it might have like different saturations or different amounts of like each chemical in them. I don't, I'm not going to get too far in the weeds because for one thing, I don't really know how oil refining works and I'm not going to research it for you. You can figure it out yourself. So basically John Rockefeller, what he did is he said, I don't want to take the risk of like drilling any oil. I just want to refine the oil. So as crazy as it sounds, him and his brother, when I think of them, they were 20 decided to buy an oil refinery in Ohio. So they bought an oil 
oil refinery. And then they got that up and running. And then what they did is they quickly bought up every other oil refinery they could get their hands on. So they bought out as many as they could. And then they actually partnered with Cornelius Vanderbilt uh, when he was like, I think, in his 70s. And what they did is they got a monopoly on the railroad. So only they could use Vanderbilt's railroads. So they basically did the same thing as Vanderbilt did to the other ferry services. They ran every other oil refinery out of business because they couldn't get their oil from the refinery to the East Coast. So Rockefeller did the same thing as Vanderbilt. He either bought you out or he drove you out of business. And then he was able to control the entire refining industry in the United States. And this made him the richest person in modern history uh, by far. Um, So those are kind of two examples of people who did it kind of, you know, uh, quite a while ago, obviously, uh, around the turn of the century. And what they did is they were actually able to buy everybody out and and lock other people out of even getting in into those industries. But now it's much more difficult to do that. Obviously, you can't, it's not legal to have a monopoly. And even they eventually did break up John Rockefeller's uh, standard oil monopoly into dozens of other uh, oil companies. So those are two people who did it um, kind of in the past. But um, right now, Jeff Bezos is basically doing the same thing. He's consolidating the online retail industry um, under Amazon, but he's doing it a little bit differently. And I think that the distinction of how he's doing it from the way that, um, Rockefeller and Vanderbilt did it is really important to study and really important to look at because it actually makes a lot more sense and it has actually benefited him, uh, a lot. So Jeff Bezos knows that, okay, unlike owning a ferry or a a ferry service or a shipping service or a railroad um, or getting in the oil business, the barrier to entry getting into online retailing is there really is none, right? If you can get, if you can get like t-shirt, I mean, you name it, if you can sell it online, somebody can do it, right? So there's really no barrier to entry to sell stuff online. So Jeff Bezos said, well, I can't buy out or lock out my competition But what I can do is I can partner with my competition and I can actually help my competition in exchange for a little cut of what they get. So, and I'll just use myself as a, um, example. And so what I did is I was like selling used books on Amazon. And I I talked a little bit about this in the last episode. You can listen to it if you like. It's great. I mean, it's a phenomenal episode. They're all good. But what I did is I would, um, I had a, a, a junk removal business, basically a foreclosure trash out business. And a lot of times people would either leave all this stuff behind or pass away or whatever. But a lot of times people would leave like huge amounts of books. And I was, I didn't really want to just throw books away. Um, and I was like, well, I'll just sell them on Amazon. So what I would do is have my guys drop off these books at like a storage unit. And then, um, when we had time or I didn't have anything else for him to do, I would have them, um, scan the books into Amazon, take pictures and like list them on Amazon. And then I would sell them. And basically how it works is you get, 
I don't remember the exact breakdown, but I'll just do use an example for I'll just use an easy math example. So like I would get 80% of what the book sold for and Amazon would get 20%. And then Amazon would also charge me, I think back then they charge you like a small monthly fee to like sell stuff on Amazon. I don't remember. But so Amazon was actually making it way easier and actually making it possible for me to sell my books online and making it appealing for me to sell books online because otherwise... If there was no such thing as Amazon, I sure as hell wasn't going to pay a bunch of money to put up a website to sell books for like 10 or 12 bucks. So Amazon actually, not only did they help, not only are they like helping other people who want to sell stuff online, they're actually like creating their own market space, marketplace in a lot of ways, because I would really have no other option to sell books. If Amazon didn't exist, I would have just thrown those books away is what I'm saying. So Jeff Bezos, instead of putting you out of business, is actually partnering with you. And I think that's a really important distinction. And um, I think that that has really helped him as far as like growing Amazon as quickly as he has. Because instead of other online retailers being his adversary, other online retailers are actually like his ally. And they're helping Amazon grow by using his platform. So it's more of a partnership. But that has helped Jeff Bezos become the richest person uh, alive today. And um, his current fortune, I think, is $117.2 billion. That's of April 2020, according to Wikipedia. Um, So that's kind of consolidation in a nutshell. And um, so basically just overall, you're just taking a bunch of little businesses and turning them into one huge business if you can. Um, or allying them under one like umbrella. That's kind of the easiest way to think about it. But the idea that I want to talk to you guys today about that I came up with um, about a year ago, I think, is sort of more, it is a consolidation play, but all the examples I talked about, Vanderbilt, Rockefeller, Jeff Bezos, those are like consolidating on like, the biggest magnitude you can possibly do. Like those, all those people have consolidated industries that are huge, number one. And number two, like they consolidated them around the entire globe, right? So Jeff Bezos, Amazon is in several countries. But if you're like me, you can't really afford to like bankroll something like that that's that big. You have to start like in your own backyard, right? And that's kind of what I... Th- what I was thinking, because I've always like liked to study people from the past and even, even super successful people from today. And I was like, well, how can I take a principle or really like an idea that I've seen these other people do and like apply it in a business in my own life? Um, and also, it's got to be an industry that you're like at least somewhat familiar with. So I was like, well, I saw real estate. It's pretty hard to like consolidate real estate, right? you have like a lot of competition. You have a lot of huge franchises and you, you really like can't compete. You have to spend too much money. It, it wouldn't work. So I ruled out real estate sales for me. But another I, another business that I had been involved in kind of as a secondary business was um, lawn care and more specifically mowing lawns. Um, so I thought about that 
and really, if you look at it, lawn care is really a good example of a really fragmented um, industry, right? I mean, you could get 10 different bids from 10 different lawn mowing contractors in your town and you would probably get 10 different prices and they can vary a lot. I mean, they can vary, you know, by like 10 bucks a mowing, you know? So I kind of like did a little experiment and my lawn is basically, I mean, it's like pretty standard size, right? It's a standard size, like Biller's lot in a normal neighborhood. And I got everything between $30 and like $47 a week to mow my lawn throughout the summer. So that's like a pretty fairly large um, difference. You know, that's like $17 swing from the cheapest person to the most expensive person. And then the other thing I know, um, because I've used different lawn services and I've talked to other people, different lawn services or whatever. And, you know, a lot of times like you'll want them to show up on like every week on Tuesday. Well, they'll do that for a while. Then they'll get backed up and they'll show up on Wednesday and then maybe they show up on Thursday and then maybe they like go out of business or the guy that's mowing your lawn sprains his ankle or he just goes totally AOL if the, or, uh, AWOL, AWL, um, or they just stop showing up altogether, whatever. They just flake out. So, um, the prices are different. The service, the quality of service is different. You know, it's just like all over the place. And then the other thing too is there's like professional mowing companies that do like lawn and landscape and everything. And then there's also like the kid down the street that does it. And some of them take credit cards, some of them don't. So basically everything about them is different from one company to another. So I thought, well, what if you could just like standardize what if you could just standardize the experience specifically for the consumer? So as a consumer, what you want is you want McDonald's, right? You want to know what you're getting into every time. So if you go to McDonald's and you order a number one, you know what it's going to be every time within a small margin, right? So my idea was and is to create basically like a platform let me just explain to you exactly, I don't want to get too theoretical. I'll just explain to you exactly like what the website is and like how it works. And that'll basically clear up all the theoretical stuff that I don't want to get too far into. <clears throat> so let's just walk through the website. And basically what the website does is I'm a consumer. I go to this website. I want my lawn mode. So I go to this website. I type in my uh, address, um, city and state and my email address and my contact information. And, um, I put that information in and it like spits me back out exactly what it's going to cost to get my lawn mode. Um, for if I want to cut every week or if I want to cut every other week. And then if I like that price, I can, um, select what day I want it mowed on. And then I can enter my payment information and hit confirm. And I know that someone will come cut my lawn on this date. And then when they're done, I'll get charged. My credit card will get charged and they'll come back the next, the next frequency. So they'll come back the next week or the next two weeks. And once I have it in there, it's just on autopilot. And, um, if I want, if I'm, uh, want to do it myself or whatever, I can turn it off. So it's super, super, super simple. 
I get an inv- I get a receipt every time they mow my lawn and every time my credit card's charged and I have to worry about it. The other thing is on the consumer side, let's say the people want additional services. So let's say the people want um, leaves removed in the um, spring or fall or any other basically outside service you can like think of is I have available on the website. So if somebody wants a fence put up, if somebody wants landscaping or, um, or hardscaping or tree service, um, they can get a quote through the website as well. So that's what it looks like on the consumer side for me as the owner of the website. It's basically, um, I have like an owner, an ownership side where I can add in different zip codes. So I would just start like in my own zip code and start selling services there and then expand it out. And then I can put in any zip code in the country and then add, um, how much a lawn is going to, um, how much I'm going to charge for like a lawn to be mowed there. So that's kind of what it looks like on my side. And then what I would do, what I, what I was doing is instead of me going out and mowing, cause I'm not going to mow and I'm not going to, uh, I don't have my own crew or anything. I was just going out and recruiting people to mow uh, other companies to mow and then like splitting it with them. So for example, um, if somebody wanted their lawn mowed, it was going to be 40 bucks. The company that I sub it out to, or my vendor would get $35 and I would get five. And that's kind of how it works for, for everything as far as like the uh, reoccurring stuff. So the mowing was reoccurring. And then other things like if somebody wanted like hardscape done or they wanted landscaping done or, or a tree service done, what I would do um, is I would just, they would go into the website, kind of give a description of what they wanted done, put in their contact information. And then what I would do as the, as the owner of the website is I would go out and find three companies that provided those services and I would, I just sell them the lead. So somebody could say like, well, I want like a paver patio in my backyard um, done. And so I would go out and find three companies that did hardscape, um, charge them each 20 bucks for the, for the contact information and the lead. And then it was up to them to do whatever they wanted to with it. <clears throat> so like a fairly simple model, I mean, it is pretty straightforward. Um, I guess there's some other like pretty large companies that have like got into this. Well, I don't know if they're large companies, but I think they have like a backing from like venture capitalists and stuff, but they're kind of doing something that I, if you want to do something like this, or if you're interested in, in learning more about it, what they're doing is they're basically like racing to the bottom and trying to get as much of the market as they possibly can by being the cheapest they can. And what they're doing is they're basically just like recruiting like the bottom of the barrel. So they're recruiting vendors to go out and perform these services for them, but they're, they're chart. I think they like pay them about 10 bucks an hour using like a GPS tracking. Um, and they're, and they're charging like super low. Like I think, I think it's like the first two mowings, like it's like buy one, get one free. So they're not really making any money. And I think what they're trying to do is just like get to scale as quickly as they can and then they'll up their prices. But I wouldn't even recommend doing anything like that because, I mean, I'm a firm believer that if you start a business that needs to make money, I know Uber like had a 
had a bunch of investors and the guy who started it made like tons and tons of money, but people are starting to now realize that like Uber is kind of like in a bad situation because they, they have never made $1 of profit, which I don't think a lot of people know that. Um, And now they don't know how to make any money because they can't pay their drivers less. Right. Cause they're already paying them nothing. And they can't increase their fares because the people using Uber are already like, uh, you're already used to paying nothing. So I would make sure that this, that this puppy, if you get into this, is making money from day one. Because two, people are willing to pay a little bit more money if it's reliable, right? So if something is reliable and they can be counted on and it's not a pain in your ass, because that's, that's why you're like paying someone else to mow for you because it's a pain in your ass. You don't want to deal with it. You don't want to make, and you would use this because if the crew that I'm sending out flakes out on me or doesn't show up, I just fire them and replace, replace them with somebody else that I have already recruited. So the customer never has to like deal with anything. And then the contractors that I recruit to mow for me, they have, it's just like Uber in the fact that they have to get like a five-star like, uh, reviews. Like if they get any shitty reviews, I would just get rid of them. And the reason is like you're making so small amount of money on um, on the service, like on reoccurring services like mowing, that you can't afford for these guys to be a pain in your ass, right? So like you might only be making five bucks a lawn, and you don't want to like you don't want to be on the phone with customers all day long because somebody uh, screwed something up. So I would just like it would be like a three strike thing, or maybe like a two strike thing, where I just get rid of them immediately. So that's one thing to think about. The other thing to think about is, and this is like the hardest thing for me when I did it, when I started doing it, it is you have to like, the hardest part is recruiting um, vendors, like other mowing companies to like mow for you, to sign up. And it's hard because you really have to like sell the idea of, hey, listen, I know that you could probably, I'm going to be paying you 35 bucks. I know you can like make 40 bucks if it was just like, if you got this on your own and I wasn't involved, but without me being involved, like you wouldn't have got it number one. And like, look at all the benefits of partnering with me. I'm going to do all of your marketing for you. I'm going to set the schedule for you. You know, I'm just going to slide a new account right into your schedule. You won't even have to think about it. It's just going to show up. I'm going to collect payment. Um, even before you like go out to the property, payments are already going to be secured. Um, you're going to get paid 48 hours after you mow the lawn or perform the service. I'm going to do all the bookkeeping for you. So at the end of the year, I'm just going to send you a 1099 and you'll have everything you need. So basically I'm like doing everything for you. All you have to do is show up and mow. So all you have to do is operate like your side of the deal and I'll take care of everything else. So if you could get like do a, like I was just like basically putting out ads and then sending people like emails like, Hey, here's how, to, how it works with like a little video. But I think that if I did it again, I would do like, I would push, I would try to get people into like a webinar and I would try to get like tons of people on the webinar. So so everyone could see like this, like this is happening. It's coming to your like neighborhood. So you better like get on board with everything. And then too, like if you have these people on a webinar, then you can go over 
all of the benefits, how it works, blah, 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 blah. And, and then at the end, send them the information, like how much you're going to pay. So sell them on the idea first and then tell them how much they're going to make at the very end and just say, Hey, like, yeah, you might only be make, you might be making five bucks less per lawn, but what if I get you four, what if I get you four lawns altogether on one street? You're going to be making more net because you didn't have to like go through everything to get all four lawns. So that's the hardest thing. The, the other thing is like quality control, right? Like you can't be putting up with a lot of bullshit. Um, but once you get like good crews in every zip code, it would be on autopilot and you would just be like, I th- you would really be cruising. I think it could be pretty much on autopilot. So, um, yeah, that's the idea. Like I said, I, um, I kind of started this and I did end up building out a website. Um, and the website is still intact. Um, it's, it's just not being hosted right now. Um, but I still, it's still out there. Um, I guess I have the master files or whatever you call them. And I still am in touch with the developer that built it for me. And, um, kind of similar to what I was talking about in the last episode, like I thought I could kind of like start this thing part time. And then once I got busy, I could kind of transition into like working on that full time and like selling real estate and like flipping houses part time. But now that I say it out loud, that's so fun or that's so ridiculous. Um, so I did kind of like try to start it part time and I was getting like blown up, like emails were blowing up and like phone was like blowing up and I, I wasn't like just, I wasn't able to do it part time. Like you have to be like, if you're going to do this, you have to do it full time. And so anyway, yeah, I have the website that's all built out and everything. So if you're interested in doing this, I would be, um, interested or I would be open to selling the website that I have. Um, we got all the like kinks of it worked out. I, it was kind of stupid. And this is something else I want to preach is like test your theory before you spend tons of money building something all the way out. I built this thing. All, I had a developer like build this thing all the way out. And then I realized like, Oh, I don't have time to do this and I don't want to spend a bunch of money advertising it. Um, although I did, I was getting traction, but I was just like, I, I don't have time to do this. This is really, and I'm still like regretting building it all the way out. Um, cause it was just really stupid, you know, but I'd be open to selling it. Like I said, it's got um, all the, uh, development developments done on it, all the legal works done. So it has all the, like disclaimers and all that stuff that's expensive to have done. Um, it's all set up on it. And then all the, all the stuff is done anyway. So if you're interested in it, just, um, reach out to me and I, I'll, we can have a little discussion. So that's kind of like my idea on consolidation. I think if somebody like really put their nose to the grindstone on this thing, you could like make a ton of money because let's say just as an example, and I know I'm probably beating a dead horse, but as an example, like let's say you have 20 guys in your town 20 full-time like lawn companies that are mowing for you. And I think that you could get each one of them 30 lawns a week to mow for you. So that's 600 um, lawns that they would be mowing on your behalf. And let's just say, I think the, the, the lowest amount that I would get per lawn, I think was like in the neighborhood of right around five bucks. 
So that's $3,000 per week. And that's just lawn mowing. So the website, the way I have it set up, is it like upsells and downsells? You get their email address. You can start like emailing them uh, for additional services. And then I was like, what I would do is sell those leads. And um, there was a lot more. It was a really easy to get people who had landscaping companies to agree to be like, hey, hey, if I get a uh, if I get a lead for somebody who wants like a retaining wall replaced can I call you? And like, would you be interested in paying for it if it was a, a, a good verified lead? And they were like, oh, yeah, absolutely. And I would say like, well, I, it would probably be in the neighborhood of like between 10 and 25 bucks. And they're like, well, yeah, because like a, putting up a retaining wall is like, I mean, that could be like tens of thousands of dollars, right? <clears throat> so 3000 bucks a week, um, just kind of like base if you got like, 20 contractors and like fill their schedule up. And I think that's really doable. So anyway, like I said, if you guys are interested and you'd be interested in purchasing it or like partnering or something like, uh, reach out, I'll put my new email address on the show notes. It's the idea addict at gmail.com. Um, I had another one that was just my name cause I couldn't find anything to do with idea addict. And I realized it's because I already had it pretty stupid anyway. Um, <clears throat> so Kind of shifting gears a little bit is uh, I want to talk to you guys about uh, this is the, I guess I'm going to just call this the deal of the week, I guess. And that's a business for sale. It's easier to just name these segments. So this is the deal of the week. It's a business for sale. It's an e-commerce high-end music gear store and it's in Nashville, Tennessee. And I think this is like super interesting because this is like really, this is something that's really niche, right? It's high-end recording and audio equipment. And I think this is this is a good, like, a pretty cool business. It is for sale by owner. And, like, looking at their numbers, since I already recorded this podcast one other time, but, lo- like, looking over their numbers that they have um, out in the public, um, they look too good to be true. So it's you'd have to do some, like, real research on this thing. But I think it's good, like... I think this is something good to at least like investigate um, as a cool opportunity for somebody who is into this kind of thing, because this business is licensed through some different like audio manufacturers and they're, it's like pretty exclusive. So like they're like uh, they have the ability to sell uh, equipment that only two other companies in the United States are licensed to sell. So if you need a certain kind of mixing board or you need a certain kind of audio equipment, it's this company and two other ones in the United States. And then they're one of five in the whole world. So that's like pretty exclusive. So that's really niche, but you have to make sure that it's like not too niche because or too niche or whatever, because there is such thing as like too niche where your pool of buyers is like so small. I remember I was like talking to a guy and he wanted to start a business because I don't even know how he got into this, but he lived in Omaha and his specialty that he did was he translated American sign language into French and like Canadian French, not even like France French, which I guess is different. That's so specific. Who the hell knows? Like, obviously it was so specific. He couldn't even make a, like a full-time living doing it. So you have to make sure that even something like this audio equipment thing 
isn't too niche. Like you need a big enough pool of buyers. So I talk about like having a niche or niche business because you have to, to differentiate, differentiate yourself, but it can't be like so small that you can't like make a living. So anyway, this audio equipment business is listed for $2.2 million. Uh, it says that cash flow is $1.2 million, does a gross revenue of $1.7. They're carrying $900,000 in inventory. And right now they're renting the building um, for $4,000 a month. So it's an e-commerce store. That's the that the, the way that they're uh, advertising it. But they do have a, a brick and mortar showroom in Nashville, Tennessee, which if you're going to like sell recording equipment, Nashville, Tennessee, like a pretty good place. Um, and they do have some um, kind of like semi-exclusive deals with some manufacturers. So it's definitely like uh, interesting for sure. And um, if you're already like, let's say you're already like a work for uh, a company um, that's closely related to this, it would de- and you wanted to get out of that and own your own business, this is definitely something to look at. Uh, it is for sale by owner. Um, if you want information, I can just send you the link. Uh, just shoot me an email. So that's the deal of the week. And then like my three critiques, these are the three businesses I look at each episode. I'm saying week, but I'm doing this like every day, like I said. So, I mean, maybe it'll be every day. I don't know. So my three critiques of this episode, three different businesses people have asked me about. And um, I think all of these are like pretty good, right? So the first one is a security or a guard service. So um, like a security guard business. And when I was first talking to the guy about this, who was asking me about it, it was like not very exciting. Like that seems like a pretty boring business, right? Because you think about Paul Blart, mall cop, and you think, God, that's like pretty lame. But the more I thought about it, it's like I just moved to the suburbs. I used to live like in the urban area of Omaha. And Omaha is like really safe. You can literally walk down any street in town. Well, maybe beside the one. Um, you can literally walk like pretty much anywhere in town and no one's really going to bother you unless you're like gang banging or like slinging dope. Um, but every business um, in Omaha, like in the urban areas, like usually like has a, at least a security guard or an off-duty cop at the front. So like all the grocery stores like downtown have a like a rent-a-cop in the front or sometimes they're an off-duty police officer. So that got, that got me to thinking too is I have some friends who are cops and they make good money being cops, but they make like unbelievable money being um, off-duty like security guards. So I have some friends and they do it and, and they get paid like 75 bucks an hour, right? To like go to a bar and like stand outside to make sure there's no fights or whatever. So they're getting like 60 bucks. So you know that the security firm that they're working for is charging the client probably 200 bucks an hour. So with that much demand and ability to like have a skilled, like a workforce where you wouldn't have to really worry um, that much, uh, you know, I think that this could like definitely be a good play because good demand, good workforce. Um, and obviously like not everyone's going to do it. Um, so anyway, yeah, I think that could be good. So if you can manage, a, basically you're just managing labor, right? You're just selling labor. So if you can manage a, a large amount of people or set up staff to manage a large amount of people, I think that's a good play. The next one is like near and dear to me because my wife does this. 
not as a full-time job, but she does it as like a hobby of hers. And that's a furniture restoration. And actually we just, I just got home from running out and like buying a piece of furniture. Well, we actually bought two pieces of furniture today, but I think this was like really good because I've seen it like firsthand. My wife, like I said, we flip houses and we sell real estate and, a, and whenever you flip a house, you always want to stage it because you're selling the fantasy, right? So we stage it with furniture that we have and, and she buys these pieces of furniture off Craigslist or Facebook marketplace or whatever and, uh, um, paints them, gets them like looking nice, you know, fixes the tracks if they don't work, um, whatever. So she'll like buy these from people like a end table or whatever for like 10 or 15 bucks. And then she makes it look nice. She uses it a couple times in staging and then she like wants something else. So I always say like, if you want something else, like we can't keep like piling stuff up, like a bunch of furniture. So you have to sell it. So she always sells it and it's like, she bought it for 10 bucks, but she sells it for like a hundred and they sell fast. If they're good, they sell fast. And she's got some like really found some stuff that's like really nice to begin with, like mid-century modern furniture that people really go bonkers for. And she, I think she paid like 20 bucks for one of these things. And she, I think, I think she ended up selling it for like $300 and she, we didn't do anything to it. We had it in our, sitting in our basement and we didn't want to move it. So she was like, oh, I'll just sell it. And people went nuts for it. So I think that like you can make good money doing it part-time. If you could, if you live somewhere where there's like enough people, that's a problem with a lot of stuff. Like in Omaha, you run out of people, right? You run out of, there's just not enough people here. But if you live somewhere where there's a, a big population and you can find enough, like if you can get a good enough source for furniture to restore, I think it could be a really good business. I think you could do it full time. And I think you could actually make pretty good money because I've seen enough, like just in my own life of getting some, like basically like a piece of trash for nothing and turning around and selling it for like top dollar and having people lined up for it. So I think that's definitely good, especially other thing too, like, is if you have like junk or like flea markets in your area, that's like the best place to do it, I think. Um, and then if you have the skill set, but yeah, I think that's really good. I think that people, and people really like that, like restored stuff or whatever. So yeah, that's a definitely like a thumbs up. I love that one. Um, the next one is a food truck this, that does pizza. And so my dad is in like food service. He works for a company sort of like Cisco or American foods. I'm not going to tell you the name of the company. It's none of your business, but so he like works with restaurant owners all the time. And my own, my grandparents used to own a restaurant. Owning a restaurant is a lot of, it's a ton of work, right? And it's a ton of work because basically the way you have to think about a restaurant is it's a little factory and it's a little factory where all of your raw materials go bad if you don't sell them. Number one, number two is it's a little factory where everyone who works in the factory steals from you all the time. And even if it's like not malicious stealing, let's say the cook is also like drinking Coke, diet Coke or whatever the whole time he's cooking. Well, he's like stealing from you. He's steal taking money out of your pocket, but you can't be like, Hey, you can't drink the pop unless you pay for it. You know I mean? It's tough. So, it's hard to run a restaurant 
for sure. And the restaurants have tons and tons of competition. Like in Omaha, there's like so many restaurants. Like it's just unbelievable. You, it's really hard to make a dime with a restaurant in Omaha. Um, it might be different in your area, but it, it's probably tons of competition. I would imagine it holds true for everywhere. Um, so those are things to look at. However, if you have a food truck and it's just like you or a couple other people, the good thing about like a food truck is like you're not paying rent on it, right? You don't have to drive people to like a certain geographical location. You can go where they're at. So I always thought like if you had a food truck, especially pizza, you could go like to the areas of town like where colleges are at, where kids are like getting out of the bar at 2 a.m. Or like you could go to like where factories have like a shift change or like a uh, break and sell it. You could sell like a hospital, like go park outside of a hospital and let the hospital staff um, come out and eat it or whatever. So I think that's good. The other time, the other thing too with a food truck is like you're going to like kind of know your peak times and you can just be out at those peak times. So that's a positive with a food truck. Another thing is like if you're specializing in pizza, pizza is like really good. It's easy to make. It has big, like pretty big margins. You can sell it by the slice to make the margin even higher. Um, so this, this is like a kind of a one that's like sort of a mix. And I would say too, like I would want if somebody was looking at this, like you need to have experience in like running a restaurant or managing a restaurant because out besides sales, besides people buying stuff from you, the hardest part of a restaurant is managing the people and managing the process and making thing is the management aspect, just period paragraph. So that's a maybe. I think that it could be good for the right person. It could be really good, especially like I've, I've seen a lot of people like start off with a food truck who wanted to like open a restaurant, but they're like, well, let's just try it out with a food truck first to see if it's going to be viable. I think that's really smart. So a food truck, with pizzas, maybe. Um, so yeah, that's pretty much it. If you guys want me to critique a business idea that you have, um, on the podcast, shoot me an email. Um, or let's say like, you're like, Hey, here's like my background, come up with an idea for me and pitch it to me on like a, on one of your podcasts. I think that would be really fun too. So if you're like, Hey, I work in HR at like XYZ company. Here's what I like to do. Here's what I like to do in my free time. Like, give me like five ideas that you would have for me to like start a business. I think that could be like a really fun segment um, because that kind of gives me like uh, some parameters. So anyway, yeah, if you guys, either one of those things, shoot me a message and I'll see you guys next time. Thanks.